So I got up to the front of the line at Starbucks and ordered for my wife, the awesome Ruth Steef, a mango dragon fruit with lemonade. And they're making it up just the way you want it. Large, it's awesome. And then I reached down to pay for it and I don't have my wallet. I'm in Iowa City. I have no idea where it is. That's not a good scene. That's not a good situation. You ever been in those situations where, you know, you're just stuck. It's like, what am I gonna do here? Uh, and there's a little moment of panic, perhaps. It's not a huge deal. Sometimes it's bigger deals. Sometimes you're broken down on the side of the road. Sometimes you're totally lost in a wilderness and you're like, are we gonna get out of this alive? Sometimes you're in desperate situations in a hospital room or in a relationship, or in a financial situation, or in a business, or at the workplace, or whatever it might be. And you're like, I've got these problems, and I don't know how they're gonna be taken care of. Maybe you've planned something, and then it's all falling to pieces. But then sometimes something happens that suddenly solves all that. Somebody says from the back of the line, I got it. And they pay for the mango dragon fruit with lemonade. Sometimes somebody stops when you're on the side of the road broken down and they said, I'm a mechanic, I can fix what's wrong here, and they take care of it. Sometimes you're totally lost and you find your way out. You get, you get a Wi-Fi signal, whatever it might be. You don't know how you're going to get out of that situation, but somebody comes through for you. Some solution comes that resolves the tension, the problems that exist. And you bow your head for a moment and just thank God. You thank God that somehow through somebody else, through this situation, through this circumstance, he showed up. Through another person or in another circumstance, but God showed up. You know, on this um, July 4th weekend, I was thinking about our nation and our, uh, the founding of our nation and the founding fathers. And, and uh, I remembered a quote from... Ben Franklin, who was a, a guy who believed in God. He certainly was not appeared to be a thoroughgoing Christian, but he said something once, and I want you to listen to what he said here. He, he's commenting in a gathering of people who, who forget to pray before they undertake some great cause in our country among the legislators. And he says, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. Benjamin Franklin realized in some sense, in some way, to some degree, that God was involved, that he wasn't absent, that he hasn't left the scene, but that he actually involved himself in the lives of human beings. And he cared about what was happening here in our midst. Well, guys, today I want to talk to you about that we're working our way through the book of Revelation, and today we come to what I'm calling the perfect answer to all of our problems, which is a pretty lofty title, I'll, I'll give you that. The perfect answer to all our problems. But I think we have to go back to this because I think sometimes we've lost track of it as individuals, as followers of Jesus and others, the community, nation, world. And as we enter into this section, this new section, we began last weekend uh, we finished the letter section. We got through the intro of Revelation chapter 1. We got through the seven messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. Last weekend, Brandon did a terrific job of opening up now a vision of the throne room of God, the Father, our Creator, 
And you have these angels worshiping in these thrones everywhere, 12, 12 thrones, 12 apostles, 12 tribes, thrones everywhere, living creatures of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Uh, you know, these strange, bizarre symbols. So guys, we have left the section of Revelation that's kind of straightforward and historical and grounded and so forth. Now we're coming into the symbolic section of the book of Revelation. I just want to remind you a couple things. One thing I love, uh, Alistair Begg says it this way. He says, in Revelation, remember, the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. So there's a lot of symbols and we don't totally understand everything. We're not going to. But the main things are plain to see. They're the plain things. And the plain things are the main things we want to focus on. So let's not get, if we don't understand every last symbol and every last word, that's okay. We'll get the main picture. We'll major on the majors, right? The other thing is that the apostle John who penned these things and Jesus himself, and as he communicated these to us, the book is called the Apocalypse, which means the word apocalypse, original Greek, means reveal, revelation. It is here to reveal something to us. It is not to make it secret. It's not a secret code that has to be deciphered. It is a revelation. It is a revealing to us. But here's the thing about the Apostle John. He was not so concerned, and nor should we be, of the how these things are going to all come down and the when, but rather the who are they focused on and the what is the main thing and why is this important. So not the how and when, but the who and the what and the why are the important things. So we've left the letter section. Pastor Brandon led us into chapter four, which is this amazing picture of God our Father on the throne of heaven, the creator worthy of worship. And it's just this amazing, spectacular scene where God just completely blows everything away. But what it does now is it reveals to us a parallel reality to our own that converges in our own. What, what, what John is doing here, and what Jesus does for us in giving this vision to John, he pulls back the curtain from the everyday life that we're living in to the everyday life of those seven churches that were struggling. They were struggling with the same things we are. Struggling with culture. Struggling with hardships. Struggling with their own hearts. Struggling with temptation. Struggle, struggling with the pull of, of idols. Struggling with hearing false teaching everywhere. Uh, struggling with uh, losing their first love. Strugg struggling with being lukewarm. They had the same struggles we do. And so to that, Jesus wants to give them a vision of a, a reality, an ultimate reality that is now. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 are, are not about a future reality. They are about a now reality that God right now reigns on the throne of heaven. Not in some future day, but right now. And this is for us, this is for me, this is for you. You can know that God reigns. And that's why chapter 4 is given to us. The creator who reigns and we worship him. There's this ultimate reality. It's invisible to us, but that's why we have the book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation reveals to us that which is invis invisible. It makes visible hidden realities that are nevertheless realities. And some people have a hard time with this. They're like, wait a minute, I can't believe in something unless I can see it. Oh, really? How about Wi-Fi? You can't see that. You believe in it. You just hook up to it and there it is. You have no, you can't see it, but you believe in it, right? It's 
frankly, more important than a lot of other things in your life, if you're honest. And you cannot see that invisible reality of Wi-Fi, right? And even the secular culture gets this idea that there's something beyond just what we can touch, taste, feel, see here, right? They, 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 have, they have series like Stranger Things, like there's this some kind of connection to some other forces at work here. Or in the older days, the Matrix, or maybe Harry Potter, or whatever. Something else, some other forces that are at work. Or if you're really old school, I don't know, Willy Wonka? I don't know. Whatever. But there's some kind of powers at work, good and evil, that exist and are just as real as anything that you can see. And so to these seven churches and to us, who were struggling and going through hardships and had problems, just... We're just like them, and they're just like us. He gives them this incredible vision of Jesus. Because now in chapter 5, we go from the focus on the throne of God, our Father, our Creator, to the throne, to the, to, to the Jesus. Then I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne. So now we go... go Harkens back to chapter 4. I saw in the right hand... So the right hand is like this, extended, right? And... Uh, the one seated on the throne, that's God himself, a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. So it's an open hand. It's, it's not clutched, but it's an open hand with this scroll. And what this scroll is, it's got writing on both sides. This is hearkening back to Ezekiel chapter 2 and, and, and Isaiah as well. But it's, 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 the scroll contains the plan of God. It is the unfolding. It is, it is the revealing of the story of history, the meaning of life, the salvation of the world, and God's justice against evil and making all things right and making all things new. And this plan, this scroll with the plan of God, the design of God, the redemptive and justice purposes of God, the future realities of redemption and justice are all in the hand of God. But they're sealed with seven seals. Now, to seal something, there's these wax seals that are put on the scroll. There's writing on both sides, which indicates the fullness of this plan. Normally, on a scroll, you only get writing on one side. Because the papyrus would go horizontally, and then it would be, be on the back side, it would be vertical, glued together to give it structure and firmness. But you didn't normally write on the back side, because that was hard. It was vertical, hard to go against the grain. But if it was really important, or if there's a lot, lot, lot to say, you'd write on both sides. And this plan is so full, so complete, so sovereign, so comprehensive of everything that God has planned. There's writing everywhere on both sides in this plan of God in the scroll. And it is sealed with seven seals. It is sealed. The monarch, the king, uh, if he had an order to give in a scroll, he would seal it with a seal. His signet ring would, in the wax would harden. And then no one but authorized agents were allowed to open and break that seal. And if it's really important, you'd put two seals. And if it's really, really important, you'd put five, six, seven seals. Seven is the number of completion throughout the book of Revelation and in the ancient world. So it's got seven seals. By the way, they, just a historical little side note here. They never, um, they never had found a seal in the ancient world with seven seals until 1962. And then they came and found in some ancient uh, crypt uh, uh, a scroll with Sealed with seven seals. So this was mighty important. And so the plan of God is there. It's right there in the hand of God. Verse 2. 
I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Now there are thrones surrounding this one throne. There are 24 thrones representing the humanity and the tribes of Israel and the apostles of Jesus, I believe. And then there's one throne, though, that's in the middle. And the mighty angel proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy? Who has the moral excellence? Who has the intrinsic goodness? Who has the spiritual stature to actually take this scroll to break the seals and to open the scroll? Why, that person would have to be, we learn from chapter 4, would have to have some significant stature, would have to be like God, equal to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Not just any schmuck can run up there and grab the scroll and say, let's see what's inside. No, 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 no. That would be an absolute affront to God. It's impossible to even think of. Who is worthy? In some ways, that's the question of all eternity. Who's worthy? We're certainly not. Verse 3. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the sea was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. Nobody had the spiritual stature. Nobody had the moral goodness. Nobody had the, the intrinsic excellence and goodness. No one was worthy. Not even in, in, amongst all those thrones. No one was worthy. In heaven or on earth or under the earth. Verse 4, here's the response of John. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy. Who is worthy? Crickets. No one. And he weeps. And why does he weep? Because in the scroll is all the hopes of all the people of God. In the scrolls of the plan of the ages that will vindicate that which is right and judge that which is wrong. In the scrolls, the plan, the design for all of humanity and the new heavens and the new earth. In the scrolls is everything. Justice and redemption and salvation. It's all there waiting to be broken and open and enacted. But no one is found. In other words, we're not just stuck we're doomed. And he's overcome with emotion and grief because no one, we're, we're toast. No one can do this. No one has the ability to answer all of our problems and to enact this incredible plan of God. No one, it's, it's right there in his hand, but no one can touch it. No one can look at it. Here's the first principle. God has a plan, but who can make it happen? See, this is, this is the whole story of the Old Testament and the New. God has a plan of redemption. He has a plan of justice. He has a plan of, 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 uh, of this incredible restored creation. But who can make it happen? How is that ever going to come about? And you look around and you say to yourself, I don't see it happening. I mean, it's so, we're so messed up. Life is so wrecked. And, and destroyed, and it's so broken, and there's so much evil, and there's so much brokenness in our world. How will it ever be repaired? It's beyond repair, and no one could make this work. No one could make this happen. And it's an incre incredibly sad moment for John. But it doesn't stay there. 
And he said, I wept and wept. And maybe right now, you feel that way too. You're stuck. It's like, I've got so many issues. I've got so many problems. I look around, I see it. Where do we go from here? How do we move forward? How do we solve anything? My personal issues and then community and world and global and all that good stuff. Doesn't stop there though, thankfully. Verse five, then one of the elders said to me, one of these elders, these angelic beings said to me, do not weep. One translation, weep no more. I love that. In fact, that could be the title of this message, weep no more. Happy days are here again. It's okay. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're the church, he's saying, it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. Weep no more. For look, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Just hold it there for a moment. He says, behold, someone is here. He has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one who is worthy. It is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This harkens back to Genesis chapter 49, where this prophecy was made of a coming ruler who will be like a lion cub. He will be a ruler. He will rule in majesty. It says the scepter will not depart from Judah. There is a coming deliverer. And like the lion, the king of the forest, he will reign in power and majesty. Genesis 49, it's all there. And then he's called the root of David. David was the king, the greatest king of all of Israel's history. And yet his, apparently, his kingdom had disintegrated. It was no more. It was like a stump. But Isaiah prophesied, but wait, there's a shoot that comes out of the stump. There's still life in that promise. There's still life in the Davidic line of David. And somehow from this root of David is going to spring forth a deliverer, a king, a son of David. And he will reign. And he will come and he will solve the problems. He will be the one that can open the scroll, that can enact, that can carry through, that can follow through and make this incredible plan of God actually come about and break the seven seals and say, let's go. Let's make it happen. Here's the second principle. The lion has conquered. He says, the lion has conquered. What does he mean? You're seven, these seven churches, the mission, the emperor is throwing you in jail. He's murdering some of the people in your church, her leaders. You're struggling with all the false teaching that's going on. I mean, the culture is all against you. Um, there's crazy stuff happening morally, intellectually, spiritually. I mean, it's just absolute haywire. And you're this tiny minority. They're like, there's like a handful of you compared to the millions in the empire that are all against you. And the elder says, the lion has conquered. He's conquered. He's won the victory. You, you think everything's lost, but no, if you're a follower of Jesus, you come back to this truth. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He has won a victory. He has do done what no other king or kingdom could do. Look, guys, um, he says to us, if, you're, if you believe in Jesus, if you've trusted in him, if you've given him your life, he's conquered. You can trust in him. He is victorious. This is the throne of reality. You cannot see it, but it is 
his throne. He reigns, he rules, and he has conquered. Now, our problem is, uh, we're not so sure we believe this. And we seek out other solutions to our problems. We, we a lot of us, at times, and maybe all the time, some are, are control freaks. We want to control all the circumstances. We're going to solve our problems. Or we think somebody else in humanity is going to solve our problems. They're going to open the scroll and break the seals. No, they're not. They're absolutely powerless apart from God. So what we do is, is we, we substitute the throne of God, chapter 4, and the lion of the tribe of Judah who reigns. We have our little, our little baby thrones, Matt Chandler calls them. Our little mini thrones, our little tykes thrones. And we say, I'm going to have my own throne, and I'm going to control my, my, um, my destiny, and I'm going to fix these things. And we, and we, we wear ourselves out thinking we're, we're going to solve the problems. And when we take over and, and forget about the throne of reality, the lion who has conquered, what happens? I mean, we just bounce off the walls all over the place. We become nervous. We're miserable. We're angry. We're addicted to stuff. We have all sorts of heartaches. We're weary. We're worn out. And then we resort to other things to try to soothe our pain. We bounce kind of back and forth between um, trying to control everything. And when that doesn't work, then we just kind of soothe our, our freaking out by going to pleasures and stuff, money, sex, power, whatever, achievement, success, whatever it might be. And we kind of bounce back from freaking out to soothing ourselves. And it doesn't do us any good. And by the way, anybody else who is absorbed into our little king that we've tried, kingdom that we've tried to set up in our little throne, they're all miserable too. And they're, they're having to live in the world that we're trying to control. And as a follower of Jesus and to these seven churches and to you today, we need to hear, there's, a, there's one who is worthy to open the scroll. There is one who, is, who can enact the plan of God, who can come to the rescue, who can set things right, who can solve all of our problems. He is worthy. The lion has conquered. He has won a victory. It's an incredible statement. And I, I just, I don't know about you, but I need to hear that. I need to hear that in the, in the, in the, in the uncertainties of life, in the, um, in the struggles. Uh, when you look around culture, do you really believe the lion has conquered? Are you living your life as if he hasn't? Like, like you know, the future is uncertain. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, and we're just wringing our hands with worry and fear and so forth. Why would you, brother, sister, why would you live that way? Why would you sell for your own little pike's throne when you can look to the throne of God and to the lion who has conquered? There's incredible confidence that can come here. There's incredible security that comes here. You're going to be okay. The church of Jesus Christ is going to be okay because a lion, the lion, has conquered. But then he goes on. Because here's where it takes the surprise turn. He hears from this elder, the lion has conquered, the root of David has conquered. But then, verse 6, then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. 
So you've got these spectacular angelic beings. You've got the throne of the living creator God. You've got the living creatures, the ox, lion, man, eagle-like bizarre creatures that would just scare you greatly if you saw them in person. I mean, they're just these incredible beings. And the elders, they're angelic beings. And in the midst of all of that, you look over and you're looking for the lion of the tribe of Judah. You're looking for the son of David, the root of David, right? And you look over and what John sees and said is one like a slaughtered lamb. Take a look at this picture. Here's a picture of a, there's a sheep. Sheep, they, they're not threatening animals. They're, they're not king of the forest. And then it's not just a sheep, it's a lamb. It's the, it's the, little, the little guy down here. And in, in the vision that he has, the lamb has its throat slit, slaughtered. It's a lamb who's been led to the slaughterhouse. It's been sacrificed. So go back to the verse here, uh, verse 6. One like a slain lamb, a slaughtered lamb. Of course, all this you know, points back to the Old Testament, all the sacrifices, Passover. You slaughter a lamb in the place so that the angel of death passes over you and you're spared, you're forgiven. Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, the lamb led to slaughter. His own sacrifice pays for our sins on the cross. This is all pointing to the cross. This is all pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus. This is all pointing to the atoning work of Christ. This is all pointing to what John the Baptist said. Behold, when the Messiah shows up, well, how does he introduce him to the world? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A slaughtered lamb. That's your king? It, it, in apocalyptic literature and language and visions, they're kind of like dream sequences. And you've had dreams like this, I'm sure, where you had something going on and then suddenly it was something completely different. But in your mind, those came together somehow. And when you try to explain it again, it doesn't make any sense. But when in the moment of that, it all made sense. And this is the nature of apocalyptic literature. It's, it swings from image to image and they're very fluid. And they're not overly literal either. They're to conjure up images in our mind, but, but Jesus is not actually a sheep or a lamb, a little baby sheep. But the image to be conveyed in a vision which is incomprehensible to the human mind is like a slaughtered lamb, only it's not dead because this slaughtered lamb is standing, has been raised from the dead after being slaughtered, was raised now standing ruling, reigning in the midst of the throne. So he's right there in the middle of all this worship of the, of the, of the creator God. He's in the middle of all of that. What, what this is tell, telling us is this. Center your life completely around Jesus. He's in the middle of everything. The, the cross, the, the atonement, the work of Jesus. This is the solution to all your problems. You say, well, you know, that's interesting. No, 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 it's not interesting. It's essential. And every good and perfect gift is from above, says Scripture. So anything you have, any solution you have, any good thing that comes into your life is in some way derived from God and from the Lamb. 
They're not separate from them, they're all part of them. And here, the center of it, the very center of it, is Jesus himself. Worship is centering on Jesus. It is having your life completely revolving around that throne and that lamb, not this little tyke's throne, where I set up and say, I'm gonna be rule and reign and control my life, and I worry about everything, and I panic about stuff, and I try to control stuff, and I get really mad and angry about things when they don't go my way. And we just lurch back and forth, and he says, no, no, no. Weep no more. Don't be sad. Quit freaking out. It's okay. This lamb goes on. He says, he had seven horns and seven eyes. Again, the apocalyptic language, just get a roll with it here. Seven horns. Horns are a symbol of strength in the ancient world. Horns of an animal, powerful animal, horns. Seven horns is perfect strength. Seven, right? And then seven eyes, which is omniscience, knowing all things. The eyes know and see all things. Now, this has seven eyes. I know it's kind of freaky. And the rest of Revelation is going to be this way, so we're going to have to roll with it. Okay. And the, these are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. So it's a sevenfold Holy Spirit, which we met earlier in Isaiah chapter 11. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of all those things. Jesus endued and empowered the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, all there. This lamb is not powerless. This lamb is all-powerful. This lamb is not clueless. This lamb is all-knowing. This lamb is empowered by the sevenfold spirit of God. Verse 7, he went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. So Jesus, which is obviously who is represented here, calmly walks up without hesitation and removes, takes the scroll with its seven seals out of the hand of God. He is worthy of the one seated on the throne. Out of the hand of God. Principle number three. The lion who is conquered turns out to be a lamb. In other words, here's the message of Christianity. Christ conquers through his own sacrifice. The lion who conquered, conquered through his death. Most kings, lions, kill everything in their path. This king lays down his life. It's an upside-down kingdom. And as long as we live in kind of this world, we're going to have all sorts of issues and problems and addictions and failures and crazy stuff going on in our lives, and we'll have no peace The lamb, now the lion is, is mentioned one time. This is it, this passage. The only time the lion of the tribe of Judah is mentioned. From here on out, the picture of Jesus will be the lamb. And this, it's, uh, it, it, the, the word lamb, the lamb of God, is going to come up 29 times in the rest of the book of Revelation. It is the predominant picture of Jesus. It is the predominant picture of his kingdom. His kingdom is the slaughtered lamb who is conquered through his sacrificial death. It's just absolutely amazing. And we're coming to communion in just a little bit. This is why we celebrate. This is why we, we focus our lives. This is why we must come back to it again and again and again and again and again. And you know what happens here is, guys, is there's a somebody called it, I think it was Matt Chandler, he called this the convergent space. Is when our everyday lives of paying bills and going to work and raising kids and you know, doing whatever we do on a day-to-day on, on -day level, 
And then God somehow pulls back the curtain a little bit and there's this overlap, this convergent space where heaven and earth meet, where God, the realities of the kingdom of God actually intersect with our everyday life. And when those two come together, you know what that is? That's worship. When you realize, when you begin to understand that God is actually at work in your life and mine, when you see him show up in your everyday life, when you know the lamb who was slain actually lives and reigns, and he's in control of your life, it's an, and it's a powerful moment. When you realize if God is for us, who can be against us? He laid down his life for us, this lamb. It's amazing. Look at verse 8. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures, these angelic beings, and the 24 elders uh, uh, be, fell down before the lamb. So they worshiped the lamb, which now shows clearly that Jesus is God. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they're falling down before the Lamb, giving him worship. And each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So again, symbolic language, guys. We have harps, we have golden bowls full of incense. These are symbols of spiritual realities. The prayers of the saints here. The prayers of the saints in the, in, in the book of Revelation, one of them is, how long, O Lord, until you vindicate us and your cause? How long? It's one of the number one prayers in the book of Revelation. And those prayers, the saints, are like incense going up before the throne of God. Constantly. And they're worshiping in the, in the midst of that. Your prayers are important. My prayers are important. This is not a future reality. This is a now reality. This is right now. The prayers of the saints in the presence of God, in the throne room of God, with a lamb who was slain in the center of it all, and these angelic beings surrounding the throne in this magnificent, incredible moment. And your prayers, and my prayers, and the prayers of the saints. How long? When, when will you solve all these problems? And the answer is to come. We'll look at that next week, and it begins to be answered because the Lamb begins to break the seals and open the scroll. And that's the rest of the book of Revelation. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered. And you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and people and language and people and nation. So what Jesus Christ did on the cross, clearly, hear this out, is he made a payment, a ransom payment for our souls, for our sins, on the cross, because we had racked up this enormous debt, we were completely enslaved to sin, and God came forth and gave his son, and his son paid the ransom payment for our sins to set us free, to satisfy the justice of God and to set us free, and to, to, to say we're no longer slaves, but we're free, and we're no longer slaves, we're children of God. And he purchased them. He did not potentially purchase them. He actually purchased them. He definitely paid a price for sin on the cross. And he accomplished the salvation of all those who believe. He redeemed us by his blood. He paid the penalty for our sin. That's what we remember in communion. By his blood. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And we're longing. Aren't we all longing for when everyone gets along? When the wars cease, 
when everyone can live in harmony, and the ones who are going to live in harmony are those he purchased by his blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Not universalism, but from every tribe and language and people and nation, there will be people in heaven. And here's the incredible promise, verse 10. You made them, everybody who's trusted in Jesus, everybody that, that has trusted in this finished work of Jesus on the cross, you made them a kingdom. We're a kingdom now. Do you know that? You're part of a kingdom, a movement. The reign of God himself. You're not just, you know, you're not just know about it, you're actually a part of it. You made them a kingdom. You, me, we're a part of this kingdom, this movement of Jesus, this reign of God in this world, which will eventuate in a new heavens and new earth and will reign with Christ forever. This solves all your problems. Do you get where I'm going with this? And priests, what do priests do? They offer spiritual sacrifices to God. They represent God to the people, and they serve as ones who are ambassadors for God to the people who need to know God. That's what we've been called to do. We've been called, we're, this is the priesthood of all believers. We all offer sacrifices to God in worship. We all give our lives to him in service. We're all to represent him in this world, and we're all to serve as these kind of go-betweens, these ambassadors to shine the light of Jesus. And they will reign on the earth. The promise is one day, there's coming a day when we will physically, visibly reign with Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. So here it is, the solution to all your problems, principle number four, Jesus is the perfect answer. It's seven, 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 seven repeated. This is gonna be repeated throughout the book, it's perfect. He's the answer. It doesn't mean that every problem you have will immediately be solved. It won't be. But you have the perfect answer already, Jesus. He's the one who delivers on every last one of his promises. We live in reality right now, don't we? Sort of. Let me show a picture of Ruth here. Um, yeah, here's... In the midst of all the screens and monitors and medical equipment and tubes and wires and, and bags and technology is my hundred pound plus change little wife, my bride. That's reality. But guys, that's not ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is that Jesus reigns. Ultimate reality is that God has us. He's not forgotten us. Ultimate reality is he cares. He loves. He's redeemed us. He's made us a kingdom and priest to serve our God. That's ultimate reality. This is temporary reality. Yeah, we live in it. And thank you for all your prayers, your incredible encouragement. She's doing well. God's, God's with us. He's for us. I want you to remind you, no, no matter what you're going through, look at verse 11. No matter what you're going through, God's there for you. But have you ever, have you ever really crossed the line of faith? Really? Have you ever come to that point of convergence where you knew that God was for you and you understood that Jesus is real and that he really is the lamb who was slain? If you never have, please cross that line of faith right now and trust in him. He's for you. He's what you need. His blood will redeem you and, and set you free. And it may be a rugged journey. It was for them 2,000 years ago. It will be for us. But he is the perfect answer. And maybe today, 
maybe today for some of us, it's, it's, it's time to, to set our little thrones, our little have to control everything, our little getting angry about everything, our little worry and fear and panic and I've got to do it all. And we substitute today and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just slip off and, and kind of put away my little throne and let Jesus reign. Maybe you just need to be reminded of that. Maybe this is a strong commitment to you. Maybe this is a turning back, repentance, and saying, I've forgotten about all this. I don't care what's going on in your life. This is reality, and he is the perfect answer to whatever you're facing. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Seven. Perfect worship for a perfect king. All those things he deserves them. He deserves our all. This is what worship is. Worship is attention to God. It's not necessarily a posture. It's not necessarily somebody who's really expressive or whatever. Worship is paying attention to God. It's saying, well, who God is and what God has done and what Jesus has done is more important to me than my little throne or my little world. He actually reigns. That's worship. Verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea, earth and on the sea and everything in them saying blessing and honor and glory and power. That's four because that's the four corners, the whole earth. Be to the one seated on to the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Principle five, worship the hero of the universe. The beginning of the solution to all of our problems is to humbly put aside our own throne and say amen. So be it. Worship isn't just singing. It's saying, so be it. Let Jesus reign in my heart. Let Jesus reign on earth. Let Jesus reign supreme. And I, I will now put away my throne, my little throne I want to establish, and I worship. There's a, there's a worship song we sing sometimes and, and a little phrase in it. This is how I fight my battles, right? This is how I fight my battles, on my knees, trusting in Jesus. And when we do that, we avoid this lurching back and forth from freaking out to numbing our pain with pleasures and wanting approval and acceptance and success. And we just come to this subtle joy and peace that Jesus is Lord and he reigns and I'm going to be okay. And in the end, it's going to be absolutely amazing. But my present reality is that the lion has conquered and worthy is the lamb who was slain. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that we can come right now to this table, to the communion time, and take the bread and the cup and remember Jesus reigns. Worthy are you, Jesus, of our entire lives. We give it all to you right now. And as we remember you in this bread and this cup and in this worship that we give to you, help it come from our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you and exalt you. And everybody agreed and said, amen. You can partake of the bread and cup whenever you're ready. God bless you. 
And remember, Jesus is Lord.